Okay, we're going to put our prayer time in a few minutes. I want to actually start the sermon and then pray. Um, because this week I have been troubled by a news report that maybe you've seen if you've been watching Canadian news about a school in Saskatchewan, specifically the Christian Center Academy, I think is the name. And anytime I hear about Christians behaving badly, it troubles my heart. Um, so if you haven't seen the news, it's an academy that has been operating since the 70s, and between 2015 and 2000. 13, I might have the year wrong, um, under a certain leadership, there is a number of accounts of children who have brought legal action against the school for corporal punishment and a number of other abuses of power in the name of Jesus. Um, I've read some of their handbook policies, and <laughs> it's the type of thing that makes you angry. Harming children is never okay, and I didn't know how, as a Christian leader, to address it. Um, and I was on Facebook this morning, and Jared Schiebert, he is the director of church planning for the Free Methodist Church in Canada, um, but we're friends on Facebook, and he had put his own thoughts into words. And I am going to quote him because I think he very well responded. Not everything that calls itself Christian today actually is. Toxic theology leads to toxic communities and tragedy is sure to follow. Leaders, elders, and parents, please pay attention to what your church or school teaches as the truth. Does the truth taught lead to more loving and gracious people? To love to people who love God and love their neighbors as themselves. To who, people who live out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, or self-control. Or does it give cover to violence? Does it attempt to explain away suffering and the cries of victims? Paying attention to who and what is in the wake of your faith community can literally save lives. If you see broken bodies in the boat behind you, stop the engine or jump off. Disaster is just ahead. To which one of the uh, friends from Jared said, well said, Jared, I grew up in the school. I can tell horrific stories myself. And today, there's such a history of pain and trauma in so many of my fellow students. Um, and that's troubling. When God's people don't look like God's people, um, or when people claim to be part of God's group and they're not, tragedy follows. Um, we are looking at Elijah, and he is a messenger of God living in days where the people of God did not look like God's people. Um, I explained last week that after David, his son Solomon ruled, and then Solomon, as time went on, started looking more and more like the pharaohs of Egypt than his father David. He amassed wealth. He had all these building projects. He started having slaves. He had lavish lifestyle and his offspring had conflict because they, again, were trying to obtain power and authority and success. And they stopped looking like David, who had a heart after God, and started looking more like Pharaoh to the point that um, the kingdom was split in half. There was a civil war. Um, David's descendants took the lower southern part of the kingdom. We call it the kingdom of Judah. 
Um, and the top part is the kingdom of Israel, led by a, an assortment of families and dynasties. Each of these two kingdoms had 20 kings that led them. And the book of Kings, which is where we're camping for the next few weeks, last week, this week, and next week, talks and gives a rating about each king. Um, and it's not like a normal ancient document or even how a modern history would evaluate a king. Um, history would say something like, look at how much land they acquired, their military prowess, their tactician skills, their wealth, their, their um, amassing of resources, their intellect. These are all things that society and history applaud. but doesn't look to the heart of who these leaders were. And that's what God cared about. So the rating wasn't, did you expand the kingdom? It was, did your heart reflect God's? Did you bring people back into worship with God, encouraging them to follow the ways of King David, to follow the ways of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And when it's a yes, they got a good report. And when it was a no, they got a bad report. Of each of these kingdoms, the southern kingdom had eight good reports and 12 bad kings. The kingdom of Israel had 20 leaders and none of them were good. And that is when God started rising up prophets. Throughout scripture, we can find um, prophets starting like you can actually find the books of the writings um, from Isaiah on to the end of the Hebrew scriptures. These are all prophets that God raised up to speak truth. They were men who listened to God and spoke it boldly, sometimes right in the face of kings, sometimes to the people. Their mission was to call people back to God's way. Um, prophets often had to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And Elijah is right in the middle of this, at the height of evil in the kingdom of Israel. Um, we talked last week how um, there had been this trend of worshiping idols. Um, it was a, a strategic political move that with the divided kingdom happening and the temple being in the lower southern kingdom, if Israel kept going down to worship God there, there's going to be divided loyalties. If we can make shrines to cows up in um, the northern kingdom, then nobody will cross the border and, and, and side with my enemy. And that was the start of idolatry in the northern kingdom. It got worse with Ahab. Ahab not just worshipped these other things with the God of Israel. He married a woman from a neighboring kingdom, the princess of Sidon. There, there's, yes, there's Ahab. We have some pictures just to remind us who we have. So this is our first character, King Ahab, the most wicked of the 20 kings listed. One of his biggest sins is he married this woman, Jezebel. Of course, these are not, they did not sit for these portraits. We don't actually have a, an image of what they look like. Jezebel, being of another kingdom, worshiped Baal and Asherah. And in marrying her, Ahab made it the official religion of the nation of Israel. Not just 
allowing idolatry worship, putting it above. And this is where Elijah came into the kingdom to say, we, the kingdom of Israel, need to look like God's people, and we don't right now. Just like Jared was speaking out that Christians need to have good theology, not just good thinking, but good practice. Our, our words and our thinking need to line up with our actions, and they need to look like Jesus. And as I look here in our service, I can see the banner on the back that's the like core of who we want to identify as. Jesus, help us to live and love like you because you are walking with us beside us telling us how to do it. We want to live and love like Jesus. And I think with my heavy heart about the school in Saskatchewan, these teachers that spoke and said that they had the authority of Jesus and did not act like it, we need to pray. That's that's where it's at. Um, and then we need to pray for leaders like Pastor Thomas and Amy Beth right now who are getting to speak into teens' lives. May they have the humility and reliance on Jesus to speak it with love. They already do it, but we just need to continue to pray for those leaders. Heavenly Father, our world is broken and it's a mess and it doesn't look that differently than the kingdom of Israel at times. And not everything that calls itself your follower actually matches who you are. God, we as your people confess that we do not always get it right. We do not love like you do. We don't always speak the truth. We don't always listen and obey. And when we fall short, God, you are always there loving us and forgiving us. And you always get it right. So we confess our part in giving Christians bad names. But we also want to look to this, this school, these students, and the students that aren't named that are like ripples effect, um, traumatized by Christian leaders, by the church, and by the association with this academy. May they have healing, people speaking into their lives, walking this journey of, of wholeness with them. God, I it breaks my heart. May we become so close to you that we do not fall into the same sin. We lift up Pastor Thomas, Amy Beth, and any church leader and camp counselor out there dealing with youth right now. May they, their love for you radiate into these kids' lives with their actions and their words. We thank you for the blessing of summer students this year. Bless them both. And I pray blessing on your people here who each of us are coming from a different place. May the words that are spoken this morning, the ones that, that you want them to hear, just really stand out to them, highlight the important stuff. Amen. So this, the state of things is the nation of Israel looks more like, or at least the kings look more like Pharaoh than like David. And this man from a known, like middle of nowhere, forgotten town, you cannot, archaeologists do not know where Tishbe is, Elijah's hometown. Elijah comes out of nowhere and says, there's going to be no rain until I say, because God is the one I serve. His exact words are, um, verse 17, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. And that's where we picked up last week. And we talked about how God is with Elijah and he provides. 
God calls people and uses people who might never ever show up in a history book, the nobodies and the nameless, he knows you. And he provides in times of trouble. We looked at how God provided in the most bizarre of ways through ravens and a river. And as that river dried up, God still provided meat, but he didn't give the next command, the next action until the river was dry. And we looked at how, how waiting on God sometimes feels like God's not acting when he's doing things we can't see. After the river dries up, God sends him to a widow in um, Sidon. And this is really critical for, like, I never picked up on that before, but he's sending Elijah into the heart of enemy territory um, in a worldview where God's God of Israel was not the only God. All Israelites would have believed that every kingdom had a God and they were real. And that if you were in the center of it, that would be their strongest place. They would have their most power because gods were tied in most people's thinking at the time to a location. That's why homes would have household shrines. Um, and when a country came and took over, like Babylon, you would cut down their gods. See, look, my God is bigger and stronger than yours. Um, there would be a defilement of another kingdom's shrines to say, look, our God is now moving into your territory. This is now his territory. And God sends Elijah to the heart of Sidon, to a widow who did not grow up knowing about the God of Israel and provides for her, for her son, and for Elijah throughout this drought. That's where we're going to pick up today, right at the end of chapter 17, around verse, chapter 17, verse 17. Um, when God does something, there's layers to the blessing he's doing. When God is moving, there's layers to the blessing he's doing. When God blessed Abraham in chapter, I want to say 12, I was right. Chapter 12 of Genesis, he says to Abraham, Get out of your country from, um, from your family and from your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. That's a blessing for Abraham. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. God was blessing Abraham and in turn, Isaac and Jacob and the entire people of Israel with his intention that by blessing them, they would be a blessing to the nations around them. That was God's mission with this. It's part of God's redemption story that he's beginning. When we hold scripture, we are holding the story of God and what he's done for us. It's a story of love. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of him when he calls us, he invites us to be a part of that. He blesses us when he answers our prayers. It's a blessing for us. But we can also use that to encourage other Christians. Look at what God, how God answered my prayer. Now that encourages you to pray and ask God things. So God has blessed Elijah by listening to him and, and feeding him. But now he wants Elijah to be a blessing. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son. That's a whole lot to unpack 
that's for a different sermon on a different day. Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him in his arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on the bed. Then he cried out to the, God, the Lord, O oh, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, O oh, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him. And he lived. What I really notice in this is that God has blessed Elijah, but he is now sharing that blessing with others. God has blessed this woman and then gives her the son back. God listens to Elijah in the same way that he will listen to us when we cry out to him. Our prayers might not be to resurrect someone. That is definitely one of those things God does in a very few instances. Um, But it is a principle that God is listening to you. Elijah is listening to God and obeying him, and in return, God is speaking. So there's this two things happening at the same time. God listens to us, but God is also speaking to us. God is listening to us, and then he is also speaking to us. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God. I don't know how she didn't pick that up before with the fact that there's miracle oil and flour in her house. Um, and it has been feeding them for multiple days. I imagine that um, the brooks dried up during, because it's a brook, so it's fed by the rain. So after the, the, the brook season, as soon as it comes to the dry season, that brook would have dried up immediately or over time. But with no more rain, I'm guessing six months to a year into this drought is when he goes and moves in with this widow. He's there for two years. The miracle of the food wasn't what convinces her about who God is. It was the returning of her son. God is moving. At the end of this, after a long time, scripture says, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. There are three stories that happen, or three scenes that happen in chapter 18. The first one is Elijah going to present himself to Ahab. The second one is probably the one you're the most familiar with. It's the showdown on Mount Carmel. And the third one is a prayer for rain. It's not the order I would expect things to do. This is how I would do it. Show up, See Ahab, God's bigger, rain, and then let God rain. And that would, be, that would be how I would do it. And then do the showdown on Mount Carmel. See, but no, that is not how God planned this one out. And on this way, there's this side story about Ahab saying, I've looked everywhere, I've gone to all the kingdoms, everybody denies Elijah being with him. Um, my trusted servant, Obadiah, um, Go, you'll take this side of the kingdom. I'll take this side of the kingdom. We have to find Elijah. That's kind of what's going on. And Elijah, Obadiah is said in brackets here in verse three, he was a devout believer in the Lord. Even though he was high official in Ahab's kingdom, probably like an executive officer of the household uh, runnings. Um, While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves 
50 in each, and has supplied them with food and water. So this is the man of, this is the man of God working behind the scenes to protect God's people. Elijah sometimes thinks he's the only one, but God is protecting people that stayed nameless, who stayed faithful. We don't know who they are, but God knew each of them. So I think it's important to like highlight that this is something happening in the middle of it. Elijah walks up to Obadiah and says, hi, I want to see Ahab. And Obadiah says, it's actually, Obadiah says, is that really you, my Lord Elijah? Yes. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. What have I done wrong? That's Obadiah's reaction. So this is his thinking. I'm going to go tell Ahab you're here and you're going to vanish. God's going to like poof you to another location. And then I'm going to be dead meat. That, that's his fear. As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone looking for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear that they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah's here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet your servant has worshiped with the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard? I have a question. How, if Obadiah hid these people in secret, why is he saying, haven't you heard? Secrets are not told to other people. There are times where I'm like, maybe he expected the God, God to have told Elijah. I don't know. Um, haven't you heard, my Lord? Well, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord, I hid a hundred. Fifty in each cave and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah's here? He will kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab this day. Lots of things going on. So Obadiah goes off to meet Ahab, lets him know Elijah's here. He wants to meet you. I always envisioned the next story happening in one day. I don't think it did. I think... There's some ancient narrative going on because I, Alex and I just planned our wedding celebration for last month. It took months to plan that. There was a lot of logistics. How do we feed people? How do we get people to travel from Ontario to Nova Scotia? Where's people going to stay? How are we going to play music? I forgot to tell the church that was hosting our wedding ceremony that we would need songs for people to, like, I had the songs. I forgot to actually make that communication. So everybody walked in in silence and it was very, very awkward. And it was, there's a lot of logistics when you're planning an event. So I think this might've taken a day or two to plan. Let me tell you how it goes. Elijah shows up at, in front of Ahab and Ahab says, is that really you? He's talked to you face to face before. How can you not recognize him, Ahab? I had some thinking about this. Have you seen any of those pictures of people who have done extreme hikes, like the uh, Pacific Northwest Trail, um, which starts down in California and goes all the like at the Mexican border and goes all the way up to the Canadian border? It's it's a crazy walk, um, four thousand two hundred and sixty-five kilometers. If you are somebody who likes miles, two hundred and two thousand six hundred and fifty miles is this walking journey. If you walk. 25 to 30 miles a day, it will take you just over five months. Uh, one young man, Ian Crombie, took a picture at the start of his trip and at the end of his trip, and this is what he looks like. It, it's been a, it, life's been hard on him. 
Um, he estimated he lost over 30 pounds during the adventure um, and was trying, like, would average 5,000 to 6,000 calories a day just because of all of the walking and going up and down on the trail. He lost all his upper body mass and gained it all in his legs. I'm thinking Elijah has been in the wilderness. He lived by a ravine for a while. He's been um, a fugitive. He doesn't look like the man that stood behind in front of Ahab three years earlier. He might look more like the bearded guy on this side than on this side. It's my theory. There might be another thing. Maybe he they were always from a far distance when they spoke. Um, is that you, you troublemaker of Israel? Elijah had come to him and confronted him with the state of things. Because of your sin, because of the way you have caused all of the nation of Israel to sin, it's not going to rain for three till I say so. It's on you, Ahab. That was what Elijah had said at the beginning. And here, Ahab hasn't owned his part of this. You're the troublemaker of Israel. Is that you, troublemaker of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel. That's what I'm talking about, logistics. If you're getting people from every corner of the nation, it's going to take a few days to send out heralds to invite people and they have to pack food and travel. To meet me on Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who have eaten at Jezebel's table. So the next little bit is Ahab sends word out, people gather. So there's three groups of people that meet up on Mount Carmel. Four groups. There's the king. There's the prophets of Baal. The 400 prophets of Asherah are not mentioned in the rest of this. I don't know why. Maybe they stayed home. Maybe they were, in, I, I do not know why they were not specifically mentioned when they were mentioned in the summoning, but there's the king, there's the prophets, and then there are the witnesses of the people of Israel, and our last person is Elijah. Everybody's gathered up on Mount Carmel. This is what Mount Carmel looks like today. Give me a second. There it is. Um, for me, it's just another nice rock formation that's pretty to look at. For the people of Israel, this had significance. Um, first, Elijah's probably thinking back to Judges 4 and 5 when there is a specific showdown between the Canaanites and Israel and God wins. Um, it's when Deborah was leading the people as a prophet, and this is where that battle took place and God had victory. So that, that might be one thing going through Elijah's mind when he chooses this location. Another thing that might be happening is that from this mountain, you can see almost all of the places that have already been mentioned in chapter 17 and 18. Um, it rises to a height of 1,650 feet. From it, you can see the Jezreel Valley, the coast of the sea. When people were coming from the sea, you could see this rising up. It was a significant place to see uh, the ocean, the Mediterranean Ocean. The piece of that is people believed that Baal was the one who sent the provided fertility for the ground, sent the storms, sent the rain, sent the dew, and that he did it from the ocean. So from here, we could see that. We could see a storm coming. Um, it's also one of the country's most lush 
green regions. Um, you can see Lebanon from here, you can see into Canaan from here, and you can see the kingdom of Israel. It is this trifecta of seeing all of the geography, showing that God is in control of everything, or if Baal's in charge of everything. Um, there's other some neat things about the geography, but this is where the showdown's happening. And one of the Baal-worshipping temples, altars, was set up on this mountain. Um, Jezebel had actually broken down the shrine that had been set up to the Lord God and had replaced it with a shrine to Baal. Just like that, I was talking about how kingdoms and would come in and cut down an altar, our God's stronger than yours. Um, it's also why Jezebel was killing off the prophets. The prophets were the ones who gave, served the gods and gave them what they needed. Um, Canaanites had a very, their mythology about gods is not that different in some ways than the Greeks and the Romans where gods were no different than us with the same flaws and desires and needs. And this was her way of serving her, lead, her god well. Bring, look, I'm bringing all these new followers to you who will get your needs. It was also a political move. Again, bringing the power over to the Canaanite side, um, bringing an alliance to Sidon. So we have these groups of people. Elijah, one person, 400 prophets of, 450 prophets of Baal. The king, I don't know why Jezebel's not there, but he's, she's not. And then witnesses of Israel. Elijah says, how long will you waver? Looking right at the people. How long will you waver? You need to make a choice. Are you going to serve this God or this God? How long will you waver? If the Lord of God fall, if it, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. The people said nothing. Then Elijah said to him, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Is that true? No, we had just heard that Obadiah saved a hundred but he might be exaggerating. Uh, in his mind, I think he thinks he's the last one left. Baal has 450 prophets. Let's build two, let's get two bulls for us. You choose one for you, I will take one. We'll prepare, I will prepare the other bull, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of my God. And the one who provides fire is the one that is true. What you say is good, the people said. I would really, there's moments where I would like a little bit more scriptural insight. I would like God to have just let me like, what are the prophets thinking right now? Do you ever want those questions? I would like a little bit more information. I said this to my Old Testament professor last semester and he's like, Liz, yes, I, I, I feel that way too sometimes. I would just like a little bit more detail, but you need to look at where things are omitted and why some weird things are added. Something that you might think is insignificant is often very important. They make a big deal about choosing the bull, setting up the offering, and then Elijah letting the other prophets go first. And he doesn't just give them like a five-minute window. He gives them the day. They start calling on the name of Baal in the morning. Um, it goes into talking about how they yell out, they do some frenzied dancing, and it gets more and more involved. Um, there is bloodletting to try to like wake up their God. Elijah 
mocks them and taunts them halfway through. Maybe your God is, it says maybe your God's busy, but the use of that is a crude way of saying in the Old Testament, is your God just sitting on the toilet? Can't he handle this? Um, he even pokes fun, like there's some words in the Hebrew that address the fact that in Canaanite mythology, um, Baal's not always around. Sometimes he takes a vacation. And, and, and Elijah's poking at this going, does he not have the time of day for you? Verse 29, midday pass, and they continued their forensic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came, and I'm wondering what people were doing on the day. Like, I know sometimes sitting through a sermon can be long and your eyes just do the, like what, at what point did people drift off to different corners on this to take a nap waiting for something to happen? Elijah gets everybody's attention, calls them over. He rebuilds the temp, uh, the altar, sacrifices the bill, puts it on, and then does something crazy. Remember, it's a drought. Water is scarce. He gets huge jars. Um, some scholars have suggested that these might be um, part of the original uh, cleansing ceremonies. Like they were um, cisterns. Like, but they, regardless, he gets them to find water in a drought. And he pours jar after jar after jar on this altar. An altar, um, again, that is made of four, 12 stones, four layers. It's the small details matter. Elijah, knowing who God is, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the people of Israel, uses 12 stones as part of this altar, reminding the people, this is your God. You are part of these 12 tribes represented in the stone. Drenches it in water and prays. After listening to an entire show with like river dancing and flailing and bloodletting, in a lot of ways, his prayer is very simple. Oh, it's three times of water. The water ran down the altar and filled it, filled the trench. Starting at verse uh, 36. At that time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all the things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me so these people will know that you, the Lord, are God and you are the one turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the fat sacrifice, the wood and the soy, stone and the soil, also licking up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate. They cried, the Lord, the Lord is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded, okay, so this is what happens next. They seize all of 450. So there had to be at least more of the people of Israel than 450. There, again, I would like to see this in real time, how it looked. Um, but they carry every prophet down the hill into the valley. And that's where they uh, kill them. Again, I have so many questions for Elijah and God about this part of the story. And then Elijah talks to Ahab. I would say, see, now are you ready to repent? But that is not the conversation Elijah has with Ahab. Go eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed up to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. 
Go look out toward the sea, he said to his servant. And he went up and looked. There's nothing, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab to hitch up your charity and go down before the rain stops you. After three years of no rain, Elijah prays and God listens. There's so much back and forth happening here of God speaking and Elijah doing, and then God prompting him to pray and God listening. Even just the God speaking is a, a, a version. We talked a lot about how God provided for Elijah, provided for Elijah. When God speaks to you, he's providing his very will to you. He's telling you what he wants. I'm not Elijah, but God in the same way cultivates listening in us. I think Elijah had those times in the ravine with the ravens, even the time with the widow to start listening to who God is and following his prompting. I think the blessing of that boy being raised from life, it was a blessing for the widow. She needed her son to help provide for him and care for him. Also, she loves him. It's a blessing in that moment. It was a blessing for Elijah in that moment to go, I can pray and God answers in a big way. But it's also a blessing for Elijah in the sense of, and now I have faith to trust. I have confidence that God is going to show up now because look what God has already done. It might look differently in our stories. Um, I told last week about how during day camp, I prayed a very bold prayer. Lord, tomorrow, it's got a rain forecast right between nine and noon. I need it not to pray, rain tomorrow. God, that's what I need. You can let it rain before nine. You can let it rain after 12. I need it not to rain during day camp. And that was my prayer. That's where I ended up. I'm like, God, so make it happen. Uh, God likes me. <laughs> he likes you too. But the confidence of God likes me, it didn't rain. But I had the boldness to say that prayer because very much earlier in my children's ministry, I prayed a very similar prayer at a different camp, which was more like, God, I've seen the forecast and I'm really scared because we're outdoors tomorrow. And I just, God, if you like me and you're listening, please let it not rain tomorrow. And it didn't. The rain waited until we were in the car driving back to the church. And that's when the rain started. He built on it. Um, and it doesn't always look that successful. I'm sharing a story that Rebecca Van Oppen told me um, when she came in to talk about her book, Cultivating Trust. God gave her just a small hint of something. They, uh, David's car had rust in the bottom. You could see the ground when you were driving in it. This was years ago. And they had found a truck for $2,000. And she had $2,000 in their savings fund. And about a week later, she's praying. And God says, no extra spending. And she's like, Okay, we're not going to do any extra spending. And God's like, no extra spending. She's like, okay, we're going to do no extra spending. And she just didn't say anything to anybody in the family. And they bought the truck because, or a new vehicle for David because that was savings money. It wasn't extra spending. A month later, income tax comes in and they get a notice. There's been a mess up. They're being audited. And this money they were counting on from the tax return was not given to them. There was a whole bunch of things going on. Uh, she go, went into a little bit of the detail of it. But when they calculated the difference, it's about six months until they sorted it out and everything was back to fine. 
the difference of the things they needed during that time. Anybody want to guess how much it was? Two grand, exactly. And in the like, right in the middle of it, she find, Rebecca went to her husband. It's like David, I have to confess. I think I heard God, and I didn't tell you because I didn't think it was anything important. I thought we were already living within what he was saying, and I think he was talking about this money. And they prayed, they confessed to God, but then they went, you know what? We now have a sample of how to hear from God. We can build on this. So God is listening to you. God is speaking to you. And we are at a place where we can start cultivating that. God provides, God protects, God blesses us to be a blessing. He is speaking. We are listening. He is speaking. And we are speaking. He is listening. He is speaking and we can listen. Um, and we're going to continue next week with more about Elijah and what happens next. So we have been with Elijah in the valley. We've gone up to the mountain. And honestly, next week, Elijah is going to be in a really bad spot almost right after. So let me pray for you. God, we, your people, need you. We need to hear from you so that we are centered in who you are. I think you are calling us back to be more like Jesus today. May we have not just good thinking, but good love in our actions and in our words to others. It's not enough to attend a church. It's not enough to go through the motions. It is about being your people. So may we reflect that in what we do. And thank you for the example of Elijah who can hear from you and speaks with you, showing us that we too can do that. In your name we pray, amen.